Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell. National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's Thursday, the 7th of October today, and we're going to begin by following up our somewhat heated debate over AUKUS in the previous episode. We'll follow that with the first in-person meeting of the Quad leaders and reflect upon China's application to join the CPTPP, juxtaposed with a speech given this week by the United States Trade Representative. And finally, we'll say a quick word about Taiwan. But let's start with revisiting AUKUS, Alan. The dust has had a chance to settle a bit since the announcement of the AUKUS agreement three weeks ago. A two-part question, what have been the most interesting or notable contributions to the debate? But more importantly, have your views changed at all? The issue for me, Darren, is still debate about what. After our last discussion, argument, I thought a lot about what you had said. I discussed it with friends and I read much of what was being written. But I don't think my views have changed because mostly those views were framed as questions. But it is certainly true to say that the questions have become more complicated in my mind as you as you think it through. My major concern from the beginning was the way in which the announcement came wrapped up in so many different issues and in such a non-specific way. So we got it with a blare of trumpets, but very little precision. So going through it bit by bit, I think it now at least it is clear that it is at its heart, there sits a tripartite information and technology agreement between the three countries that will permit Australia to examine over the next 18 months the prospects for adding nuclear-propelled submarines, either British or American, to its fleet. Now, the details haven't been released, not even the broad parameters, but assuming that that is its scope, then you'd say, yes, that's a welcome development. What it is not, though, as I heard a television commentator say earnestly last week, is a new alliance. So setting that aside, we go on to the question of whether Australia should buy nuclear submarines from the US or the UK, and I guess the smaller, cheaper British version would still be the favourite, and then if we do, what we do with them. This will easily be the largest purchase in the history of the Commonwealth of Australia, and there's universal agreement or at least I haven't found anyone to disagree, that it will require a substantial increase in defence spending and possibly another 1% of GDP or more. You know, you and I have talked about before, I have no in-principle objection to Australia buying nuclear submarines. I can easily see the advantages. But I have a real objection to our doing it without a well-informed public debate, including about whether the functions they will be able to to serve are those we're going to need in 40 years' time. Now, I don't want to seem conspiratorial here, but there are certainly going to be powerful forces, including powerful commercial interests, which will be arguing in favour of this investment. 
it would be very good to know, because I genuinely don't, whether this is the best way of spending around $100 billion, I repeat, $100 billion, which is a national expenditure worth thinking about. So is that what we're defining as the AUKUS debate? It's certainly part of the debate, Alan. What's fascinating to me is where and how you chose to begin to answer my question and how that contrasts with what I've been thinking. And I think I've interrupted you a longer answer, but I think I should say that my starting point is the question of what a stable security equilibrium looks like over the medium term, whether a stronger deterrent against the use of force to settle disputes is needed, and if so, who is going to provide that and through what mechanism? And of course, cost doesn't factor into that yet. That's where I've started. Alan, we both received some listener feedback this week from someone we hold in very high regard who said that they found us both convincing, which to them was, quote, worrying and confusing and maybe completely appropriate. So I'll let you continue with your answer, Alan, but there is, I think, one thing we do agree on. Friend of the podcast, former guest ABC journalist Stephen Jedgetts observed on Twitter that Foreign Minister Payne had responded to criticism of the submarine deal by saying, quote, nobody who was not part of those discussions and who was not part of the decision-making process can ever know, and frankly, nor should they, the depth of considerations that governments go into, end quote. Now, Stephen noted that while on some level this is a statement of fact, he continued by saying, quote, the implication that unless you're a minister or a very serious official receiving high-level top-secret briefings, you simply are not equipped to offer intelligent commentary, that simply doesn't stand up to scrutiny, end quote. And I agree. We didn't have the debate prior, Alan, and we certainly should be having it now. We certainly should. Look, just on your point about a strong security equilibrium, I I agree with you that history suggests that that's a prudent aim and policy response. So we've got no argument on that. It's just a question of whether the messy framework of AUKUS is the answer. Now, without putting, putting words into your mouth, we've been talking long enough over the months and years for me to know that you would probably say, well, it's not all of it, but it's part of it. That is one way of responding, but I can think of other ways of achieving it. Then there's the associated and vital question of whether going down this route will limit Australia's sovereign capabilities in defence and foreign policy, or whether we are in effect signing on as a subsidiary of the United States Navy, whether we get a British or American boat. Now, I want to make clear, I'm not just saying that in a rhetorical sense. I was listening yesterday morning to a to an American podcast featuring David Sanger, the you know very well-connected New York Times national security correspondent. He was talking about the submarine deal with Australia, and he said approvingly, and I quote him, that would enable the United States to bring the submarines right up along the Chinese coast. Maybe Sanger was using these words loosely, but I'm certain there's a widely held view in Washington that the assets available to the US in a conflict with China have just been substantially strengthened, at least prospectively. 
Exactly. And I think if we refer back to my point about deterrence, that is both a feature and I suppose a bug of this entire enterprise, but I'll let okay. you go on. Okay. Okay. Look, my, my other continuing problem with this and, and one of the elements that's notably not been inserted into the debate since our last podcast is the absence of a place for foreign policy as part of this development. There's zero more evidence now that foreign policy advice played much of a role in the way this was developed. Indeed, judging from some of the reactions in Washington to the way Australia handled the French, there's more evidence that it wasn't. And the problem here, repeating what I said last week, is that nuclear submarines in 2040 are not much help against concerns about coercion or adherence to the rules-based order right now. That's mostly in the domain of foreign policy. I also think it's worth mentioning, and I hadn't really grasped this fully last time, is that the job of working out over the next 18 months whether and how nuclear submarines might operate is going to consume enormous amounts of the resources of the Australian public service. It will impact particularly on defence, of course, but on DFAT and other departments as well. So adding to the acknowledged complexity of the international environment at the moment, many of the best human resources in the Australian public service are going to be taken up with this task. Now, that's not that's necessary. I, I accept that. But it is going to make Australia's capacity to navigate and handle the world even harder. Yeah, it, it kind of makes me think of, of Brexit. Again, not to, to say whether it's a good or a bad thing, but I mean, well, I mean, I thought Brexit was a bad thing, but it utterly consumed yeah. the British bureaucracy for a very long time because it was so complex. I mean, this might be a small version of that, and that is, it's definitely necessary to acknowledge. Yeah, I thought, thought that was well said, Alan. I mean, for me, as I do frame the issue through the lens, you know, I just offered one of deterrence as my starting point in regional security equilibrium, my basic conclusions on the theoretical merits of AUKUS remain unchanged. But you know, like you, the more information that comes out, the more the task ahead seems even more daunting. And I think this is another aspect of the gamble or the gambit here. It's not just a gambit on a particular submarine technology for a particular set of security contingencies. It's a gamble that Australia, with its closest security partners, can actually pull off a major scaling up in defence, you know, force procurement, in defence cooperation and, and defence policy. And there is an upside, a big upside if we succeed, but there's also a greater downside to trying and then failing, since it would undermine not just Australia's credibility, but also the credibility of the alternative model of regional security that AUKUS, as I've said, might begin to represent. I do, however, want to, to draw listeners' attention to two contributions to the debate in recent weeks, both from former prime ministers. The first was Malcolm Turnbull's speech at the National Press Club. I found it an effective critique of the process that the government undertook, much like what you've just given us, Alan. And I think it's the most persuasive argument I've read for why our backstabbing of the French matters. I admit 
the French reaction was not at the top of my list of concerns last episode. You know, I'd been focused on deterrence and security order. And I think I was actually a bit frustrated by what I saw as too much focus on France in, in the discussion, especially online. But I, I admit Turnbull made a very strong argument for why the breach of trust may reverberate well into the future and therefore why it matters. And importantly, he also specifies what should have been done, which was to bring the French into the conversation at the very beginning to say, look, we're thinking about a nuclear option. Can we discuss this? And then bringing in the US and UK as necessary. I've read multiple stories now from US media that seem quite well-sourced, and I'll post one from Axios in the show notes, about how the White House genuinely thought Australia had kept France in the loop. So I'm led to the question of why? Why this secrecy? Why does it appear that DFAT as a department played such a, a minor role? And the, the Occam's razor answer, like for most things, is, is domestic politics, which I suppose would be something like the logic that the government hoped there would be some political benefit from being able to announce, as you say, with trumpets blaring, Alan, amid much fanfare, this you know agreement with an election just around the corner. I hope that's not the reason, given the magnitude of, of what we're about to undertake, but there is enough circumstantial evidence that makes it very plausible. Alan, any comment from you on the, on the Malcolm Turnbull speech? Well, it's well worth reading. At one level, of course, it's a very deliberate attempt to defend his own government's decision on the purchase of the French submarines. He very pointedly reminds us that the current Prime Minister, Foreign Minister and Defence Minister were all present in the room when the National Security <laughs> Committee of Cabinet made the decision. But he makes some other good points. Like me, he thinks that the hyperbole about the forever partnership has been dialed up to 11, as he puts it, despite the fact that nothing has been agreed. He makes a plausible case that if we wanted to go nuclear, we should at least have negotiated with the French over their nuclear submarines. Don't know whether he's, you know, right, right or not, but you know, it's, it's worth considering. Mm. And he, he gives a, a pretty devastating critique of the prime minister's handling. He says, "Mr. Morrison has not acted in good faith. He deliberately deceived France. He makes no defence of his conduct other than to say it was in Australia's national interest." So is that Mr. Morrison's ethical standard with which Australia is now to be tagged? Australia will act honestly unless it is judged in our national interest to deceive. So, you know, this is a former prime minister talking about his successor from the same political party. <laughs> He's brutal, but probably not unfair in his assessment of the poor handling of the French not just for our relationship with Europe, but the United States as well. So look, there's, there's obviously a high degree of personal engagement and some defensiveness in the story, but the broad conclusions he comes to are ones that some of them are share and some of them I don't know, but sound worth thinking about. The second contribution is from Paul Keating, who wrote an op-ed in the Sydney Morning Herald on the 29th of September. It's classic Keating in the sense of being a deliciously worded evisceration of the government's policy that led us to AUKUS. But it's also deeply, deeply problematic in its assessment of the geopolitics of the situation. And it really got chins wagging online. 
Look, I, I regret to say that I found most of Keating's contributions over the past five years or so to lack, in my view, rigorous engagement with the thorny questions that I myself am grappling with. And thus, I haven't really found them valuable. So I, I don't want to get into specifics here. You can read the, the article I'll post in the show notes and you can find good critiques online. And look, even members of Keating's own party, Labor Party, like Peter Khalil, who's a current sitting MP, have seen the need to publish op-eds in response to Keating. This was a previous one, but still to sort of call out him and say that they openly disagree with him. So instead of, of getting into that detail, what I want to do instead is take this opportunity to point our listeners to what I think is a truly outstanding speech on this exact topic given by Paul Keating himself not that long ago in 2013 and delivered in Beijing. The speech is titled China's Responsibilities and I'll post a link to where it's hosted on the Lowy Institute's website. And I want to quote from it at some length. But China too has equal responsibility for creating a new, stable and sustainable order in Asia. As it steps up to a larger leadership role, it will at the same time need to be willing to accept and respect restraints on the way it uses its immense strength, because the acceptance of such restraints by great powers is key to any successful and durable international order. First and most obviously, China should continually reaffirm by word and deed its commitment to repudiate the use or threat of force to settle disputes, just as other powers must do. Chinese friends will say that their adherence to this cardinal principle is clear and consistent. I would say that the work of reassurance is never done, that the stronger China becomes, the more it will need to reassure its neighbours about this, and that this will depend on deeds more than on words. Now, he then turns to Japan, and this was at a time in 2013 where Japan and, and, and China probably had the tensest bilateral relationship. And after first acknowledging the, the fraught history between the two countries, he continues, but there can be no stable and peaceful order in Asia unless Japan is and feels itself to be secure. There are real questions about the future basis of Japan's security, whether as a more normal country or not, but some durable basis for Japanese security must be found. It would make a big difference if China could quite plainly and unambiguously commit itself to this cardinal principle. End quote. Now, this speech is less than a thousand words in length, and in my view, it's one of the very best, if not the best, pieces of strategic analysis and, and, and persuasive rhetoric that's ever been made by an Australian, giving unflinching advice to both the US, but especially China, given it was delivered in Beijing. And it remains as relevant today. You could swap out Japan and, and insert you know, other countries in the, in the entire region. I've read it multiple times in the past eight years since it was given. And look, Keating is saying a lot and giving us opportunities to read his work. I would simply say to our listeners that one one's time, in my view, is better spent reading that speech multiple times. It's that good. But Alan, you worked for the man, so I feel compelled to seek your views on this now. Darren, one of the things I learned from working in Paul Keating's office, which you would think would be obvious but isn't, is that the job of politicians is different from yours and mine. We talk dismissively about people playing politics, he's only playing politics. But 
doing politics is vital to any democracy, and it's different from the job of analysing problems or developing policy. At least one of the jobs of politicians is to shift the frame of public reference in order to broaden the debate and engage different participants in the discussion. Politicians give permission to speak, if you like, to the voters at large. So that's how I read this article and his earlier statements, not as a careful analysis of the appropriate response to China's actions at this time. It was certainly not addressed to members of whatever the Australian equivalent of the Washington blob is called, but to the general public and in language they were likely to remember and to feel able to comment on. Despite what you just said, I'm not sure that if you translate the text into blander language, you'll actually find much difference from Turnbull's speech. Just flipping through what Turnbull had to say, if we want to have influence in our region, we must be trusted, our word must be our bond, we must be seen to have an independent foreign policy and sovereign defence capabilities, we need to have, develop and retain relationships with other nations in our region and beyond, which are not simply derivatives of our alliance with the United States. So I don't think there's anything in that that Keating would disagree with. I saw Keating's op-ed in the same category as his famous claim back in the 1980s that Australia was about to become a banana republic. I don't think he literally believed that was true, but the debate that followed was an essential part of the reforms that the Hawke-Keating government introduced. And look, you know, one other thing, both the, spe the speech in Beijing and the op-ed show a typical Keating fearlessness in saying in any forum whatever he believes, but that others might not want to hear. Any of the staffers who worked with Paul Keating could recognise the familiar sensation of standing on the sidelines of a press conference or sitting in a meeting with a foreign leader with your heart in your mouth and saying to yourself, oh, God, no, you can't say what I think you are about to say, and then he would. Thanks, Alan. Very interesting. All right, well, let's move on to our second item, which is the quad. A few days after we released our first AUKUS episode, the leaders of the four quad countries met in person for the first time in Washington, D.C., the joint statement that resulted was over 2,000 words long, and as you would expect, covered a lot, starting with the recommitment to the, quote, free, open, rules-based order rooted in international law and undaunted by coercion to bolster security and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific and beyond, end quote. In terms of topics covered, let me read the headings from the helpful fact sheet that was released by the White House. Vaccines and health security the launch of a quad infrastructure coordination group with a focus on high standards, climate change, people-to-people -people exchange and education, critical and emerging technologies, cybersecurity, and space. I think, Alan, rather than a specific announceable, I was simply struck by the breadth of what was covered by what is notionally a security dialogue. That's what the quad stands for, a quadrilateral security dialogue, and some of the, of the cooperation plans announced, especially on vaccines and, and infrastructure. You know, what did you make of the summit? 
That it was held at all was important and another sign of the Biden administration's determination to show it is re-engaging with the Indo-Pacific. As we said last time, I think the Quad sends a useful message to China about the solidarity of the other major actors, but the limitations imposed by the different interests of its participants are still real. And the rhetorical pitch just seems out of whack with the underlying reality. Look, rising to a crescendo, the communique's final paragraph reads, at a time that tests us all, our commitment to realise a free and open Indo-Pacific is firm and our vision for this partnership remains ambitious and far-reaching. With steadfast cooperation, we rise to meet this moment together. Well, you know, maybe, but there's nothing actually here about what a free and open Indo-Pacific is, apart, obviously, from one that's not dominated by China. And if the vision is ambitious and far-reaching, it hasn't really been communicated in anything set out in the preceding paragraphs of the statement. So it's another example for me of the way in which rhetorical overreach can weaken rather than strengthen a helpful asset for Australia. I I believe that the most effective communication is letting these developments speak for themselves. Well said, Alan. I worry about breadth and whether that's going to come at the expense of depth. Though it does provide further confirmation that almost every foreign policy issue now is being seen through a security lens and through the lens of China, which has its costs and its benefits, I suppose. And I do wonder why they feel the need to use this rhetoric. And I 100% agree or endorse the notion that we should let actions speak rather than words. But on this point, let's focus on the US for a moment and also take a bit of a longer term view. I think there is a decent case to be made that Biden and the Biden administration is acting pretty decisively. For all its controversy and, and tragedy, getting out of Afghanistan was a bold step, both in and of itself, but also in drawing to a close the two-decade war on terror. And while they are works in progress, we are seeing efforts on on climate change and on global health that I think hopefully, optimistically, might represent a different type of leadership. And then you have in the security domain, Quad and, and AUKUS, which I also sort of want to believe represent a different type of leadership that could be sustainable um, in the long term and is a real departure from the way the US has led in the past 30 years. Now, there's one big hole in this, and that's economics, and we'll turn to that next. And this is not to sideline, again, issues with execution. Pulling this off is is going to be hard. But look, trying to be a bit positive, I want to say that the US is at least pointing itself and pointing us in, in, in a better direction, at least for now in this administration. Yeah, I agree with I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. But let's turn to economics, because I think that is a big problem and the question of economic leadership. It only got a brief mention in our August episode, Alan, but very soon after the announcement, China officially applied to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP. And the following week, Taiwan also declared its request for membership, which is actually envisaged under the under the language of the agreement because Taiwan is already a member of APEC. Alan, many have voiced scepticism that Beijing would ever agree to the strong behind the border economic reforms that would be needed for CPTPP membership. And while Taiwan seems much closer to being ready, 
you know, it's that's obviously going to be a very politically controversial step to take, presumably unacceptable to Beijing. What's your read of these dynamics? It was interesting that China applied. Someone out there in our audience will know better than you and me how to read it. Was it a conciliatory sign that China wants to mend economic tensions with its neighbours? Was it a cynical message underlining America's political stalemate on trade reform? We can do this, but they can't. Was it a response to knowledge that Taiwan was going to apply and a determination to ensure that its own strong views were factored into, into that? Now, it could be any of the above, and I really don't know. If Beijing really was willing to make the reforms necessary to participate in these CPTPP, it would be a very good thing for the trajectory of international trade, for growth in the region and for Australia's interests. But it's hard to see any progress being made for the foreseeable future, not least because I suspect that the United States simply won't want Chinese membership. Now, you know, if I put on my most optimistic spectacles, you could maybe foresee a happy world in which during a second Biden presidential term, the US was willing to come on board. China was prepared to negotiate real economic reforms because it knew that these would be beneficial to it in the long run. And it would acquiesce in the participation of Taiwan, as it does in APEC, as a signal to the Taiwanese of its continuing willingness to give space to the idea of one country, two systems. But, you know, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not putting my money on it. On the CPTPP, my understanding is that, for example, Malaysia and Vietnam have pretty big carve-outs on some of the more onerous aspects of the agreement, especially as relating to the management of state-owned enterprises. So I can imagine the argument that Beijing will make is that it's willing to negotiate on everything, but that you know, it would not be a surprise if they're seeking a similar deal, similar carve-outs. This leads me to what I think is actually a really interesting and under-discussed question. Is the logic of the CPTPP mostly economic or is it mostly strategic? I mean, there are aspects of the agreement that are about lowering tariffs liberalizing investment and harmonizing rules and so forth. And to the extent that these promote the free flow of goods and services, like that's great. But there are other aspects that can arguably be seen as also having strategic or geoeconomic logics, which is to try to sort of compel China to reform its economy in ways that will limit its ability to, for example, support state-owned enterprises, control data flows, and otherwise exploit loopholes in the current trading system that augment its economic and indeed its national power. So yes, you can argue that such reforms would be positive economically, but it's also true that Beijing's policies are seen as problematic because of their geoeconomic consequences, because they allow them to support national champions and gain a dominant share of markets and so forth. So there's also that strategic logic behind the CPTPP. And of course, you've got the fact that Beijing's ongoing economic coercion of Australia represents a wanton disregard for the spirit, if not the letter of international trade law. Trade Minister Dan Tian has insisted that accession talks cannot begin until these measures are removed. But the broader question 
remains. Should this progressive trade agreement be open to all as long as they satisfy basic requirements to open their economies further? Or should it be about achieving specific geoeconomic objectives? I think it's a fascinating question. Oh, come on, Darren. No more observing, fascinating <laughs> questions. There, look, there's a, a pressing and imminent policy question for Australia here. How should the government respond? Which way? Make your choice. I was just stroking my chin and staring into the fire, Alan. <laughs> look, look, the practical answer is that the Trade Minister's insistence that the informal coercive measures cease before negotiations begin is, I think, yeah, the correct one. Now, if Beijing does that, I think I would support the opening of negotiations as I think, I, I do think there might be some creative opportunities to craft an accession protocol, negotiate a protocol, that might not be 100% of the current agreement, but nevertheless represent significant steps forward in terms of closing some of those loopholes in the WTO system that China has been enjoying. Importantly, though, this is a multilateral effort. What do the other members think? They've seen Australia being punished economically. They have seen how Chinese state-owned enterprises are advantaged through the protection offered by the state. Yeah, there's going to be some conflicting or cross-cutting interests here because often Chinese support for its businesses means lower prices for its customers. But it will be Australia's job to persuade the fellow members of the CPTPP that they should insist on a meaningful degree of behind-the-border reform. But to answer my own rhetorical question, is this an economic or a geoeconomic agreement? I'm going to cop out and say that, of course, the answer is both. You know, I do think China needs to make meaningful reforms that will help level the playing field. And in doing so, yes, reduce its economic power, in particular to do things like coerce, which most agree are not legitimate. However, the bigger picture is that it is in Australia's interest to see a more liberal region economically, a more liberalised region economically, and that that is done so through the framework of a, a rules-based order. So we cannot let a singular focus on the strategic aspects of the agreement displace that longer-term objective. You know, the objective has to be to get China to agree to more restraints on the use of its economic policy tools and to get China to, to see that it can find a measure of economic security in markets, in openness. You know, and, and China's always going to be big enough that it's going to have natural advantages anyway. But let me turn now to the US because just in the past few days, the United States trade representative, Catherine Tai, delivered what was billed as a major speech on the US's China strategy and the first marker of a broader Indo-Pacific strategy that the Biden team is apparently going to release in the coming months. I found it hard to describe the speech. On one hand, it was very strident in its criticism of what Tai called China's lack of adherence to global trading norms. And she was equally strided in stating that the US must defend its economic interests, quote, to the hilt. That means taking all steps necessary to protect ourselves against the waves of damage inflicted over the years through unfair competition. But on the other hand, you know, Tai was also clear that she wants to talk and negotiate, including around Beijing's commitments under the phase one of the trade deal. So overall, it was sort of light on specifics, which indeed might reflect the fact that the White House still doesn't know exactly what it wants to do. Alan, any reaction from you on the speech? 
We just learned today that Biden and Xi are going to meet virtually. I'm not sure whether they announced a date, but reasonably soon. And that might be one of the reasons for the lack of details. I think I said first on this podcast quite early in the Biden administration that his foreign policy for the middle class looked very like Donald Trump's America first, but with better manners. And that's certainly the reading I took from Ty's speech. Competition with China and Biden's government is taking place much more in his domestic policies than in his trade policy. He he knows that if the US is to make headway with China, it needs to build its own infrastructure. That domestic agenda will have a bigger impact over the long term than any of the trade measures that are currently being discussed, if, if of course, he can get it through Congress. There's an odd dissonance in the American debate, and actually in what you were saying before, too, that you could see in the Thai speech. On the one hand, there's a conviction that open market-driven economies will succeed best in the long run, but on the other, a feeling that China's state-centred model is somehow gaming the system and giving it an unfair advantage. And there was also no sense of irony in Thai's reference to the US government pouring billions of dollars into targeted industries. Yeah, and you can extend that irony to her sort of seeming insistence that they're going to hold China to phase one of the trade deal because that has commitments to purchase certain levels of of US goods, which typically require you to tell your companies what to do in order to <laughs> to buy that, that that level of goods. Look, I'm not surprised that there isn't a specific agenda. I mean, it, it feels like the Biden administration is trying to avoid making concrete policy on China for as long as possible because there are no good options. You know, if you make conciliatory moves like removing the Trump tariffs, which have been counterproductive to US interests, you'll get hit by the Republicans for being soft on China. If you take a much bolder stance, you, know, you potentially extinguish any prospect of making progress on climate change and global health and other areas of cooperation where you really need Beijing to make a difference. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Meanwhile, any effort to provide economic leadership separately, maybe like joining the CPTPP, is fraught because of domestic political sensitivities around trade and, and globalization. So what do you do? I mean, I think you gave the answer, Alan, you know, in its simplest form, the best policy on China at this particular moment in political time, at least, is policy that isn't really much about China. First, you try to fix America internally so as to minimise the prospect that Trump or a Trump-like figure could return. And to do that, Biden needs to pass his domestic agenda while he has the congressional majorities to do so. And that's probably not going to last very long because it looks like the Democrats will lose in the midterms next year. And the second thing you do then is to repair and rebuild your relationships with allies and partners. Look, this has been as uneven as we've discussed. It lacks an economic component. But as I said, I think it does sort of point in the right direction. Still, at some point, the administration is going to have to say and do more concrete things on China. But I don't expect much until after Glasgow And indeed, after they know for sure whether their domestic agenda is getting through Congress. So this announcement that Biden and Xi will meet sometime before the end of the year, I think could be very much at the very end of the year. And by that point, they'll have answers to those questions. Alan, 
Very quickly to wrap up with our final item, you know, Taiwan has been in the news a lot this past week and there's been a lot of media interest. Can I ask for a quick comment from you on, on what's been happening? We've seen a very substantial increase in PLA Air Force activities in Taiwan's Air Defence Identification Zone, ADIS, and now it's important to understand that this is not the same thing as its airspace. And so far, there are no reports of Chinese incursions into the airspace itself. Beijing is certainly becoming more worried about the growing signs, and they've been greater under Biden than they were under Trump, that America and its allies are giving greater space and recognition to the Taiwanese. So this activity is certainly a way of reminding the Americans and others of the continuing high degree of concern in Beijing, and as you noted before, we've already seen Biden reiterating in recent days America's continuing support for existing policy on Taiwan. In addition, there are obviously elements of training, elements of intelligence gathering on the part of the Chinese about the Taiwanese air assets and you know, self-evidently coercive messaging. But I don't think it's a sign of imminent Chinese action across the Straits, as has been implied in some of the reporting, at least. Yeah, look, all I can really say is that this is a uniquely complex issue. You know, take these ADIZ incursions. I mean, if you look at Taiwan's map of, of its ADIZ, you see it extending into mainland China, which seems odd. And so you might ask yourself, well, why does... Beijing flying some airplanes over one corner at the bottom really matter? Well, the reason is because Taipei only treats incursions that cross the de facto median line in the Taiwan Strait as incursions as being serious. You know, bear in mind that some of the Taiwan's islands are actually really close to the mainland, only 30 kilometres. They're all squashed very closely together. So look, these incursions are a problem. They're risky and irresponsible. You know, the risk of accident and, and miscalculation has increased, and that's why we need to condemn it, which the Australian government has done. But the other thing to flag, I think, for the future is the importance of language and precision on Taiwan policy. Joe Biden put his foot in it yesterday, I saw, when he said that he and, and Xi Jinping had agreed to abide by a Taiwan agreement. Now, there is no such thing as a Taiwan agreement. There is instead a US-Taiwan policy which is comprised of the Taiwan Relations Act, three joint communiques, and something called the Six Assurances. Thankfully, you know, the administration clarified what he meant afterwards. But the point is that because Beijing sees Taiwan's status as utterly central to its national interests, any move by the world to give, as you say, Alan, more space to the Taiwanese, more support, more status, is going to be treated very seriously. And this includes how Taiwan is discussed in joint communiques over time. You know, Beijing plays close attention to changes in wording over, over successive years and, of course, to what leaders th themselves say. I think it's probably the foreign policy issue in the world where the exact wording of everything that is said and done and the history of everything that's been said and done matters most. But, like, let's be clear. Like, expressions of support for Taiwan and especially for the Taiwanese people from governments like Australia recently are not happening in a vacuum. They're happening in response to an increase in the perceived threat coming from Beijing, that the risk of force being used to resolve this dispute is rising, as is China's capability to, to use force. And that, of course, brings us to the question of deterrence, which we should debate another day. 
But for those of us, you know, who are observing this, even commenting upon it, you really have to know the specifics. Otherwise, there's a greater risk than normal of generating heat with zero light. But I think we'll be coming back to this in future, Alan. It's it's not going away. I'm sure we will. Final segment for today, Alan, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us? Look, this is a bit belated because I was so much has happened recently (laughs) (laughs) that this got sort of squeezed out. But I didn't want to forget about a documentary on Apple TV called 9-11 Inside the President's War Room. It's a gripping and revealing documentary that focuses entirely on what was happening to President Bush and his immediate advisers as the news of the attacks on the Twin Towers and Washington began to come through and as decisions had to be made about how to keep the US government operating as well as how to respond to these specific events. Now, it includes interviews with all the key figures in the White House at the time, including Bush himself. And I have to say, I came away from it with a greater respect for the president and somewhat less for some of the people around him. (laughs) But above all, it's a classic study in the management of any crisis where details are unclear and sometimes conflicting and messages get distorted in the passing. I hadn't realised just how blind even the most powerful state in the world was on that day, but really well worth watching. Thanks, Alan. For me, look, I am pretty tired right now. I was pretty exhausted, especially after the AUKUS podcast. I found preparing for it quite intense, and it had been separately a very intense week because my son had landed himself in the emergency after an accident, cut his head pretty badly. But thankfully, he's he's fully, almost fully healed now. But anyway, in the aftermath of that recording, I was looking for something completely different. And I came across the work of the Oxford-based philosopher, Amir Srinivasan, who has a new book out called The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century. It's a collection of essays, and the most famous one from which the book takes part of its title is called Does Anyone Have the Right to Sex? And it was published in the London Review of Books in March of 2018. Now, obviously, she deals with topics far outside the the range of this podcast, Alan, on which I have less than fully formed views. But gosh, when you read her, her intellect is just second to none, and I learn so much from her even as I found myself disagreeing or at least questioning when it came to sort of the the pointy end of of how you would do public policy in response to her her arguments. So I want to recommend the London Review of Books essay. It's, It's fantastic. I also want to recommend an interview she did for the Paris Review in the past month. And I'll post links on the, on the podcast show page. And also she did a podcast interview with my favorite, the great Tyler Cowan on his podcast, conversations with Tyler because I haven't read the book yet but there's a lot of good content out there to give you a real flavor of of just how smart she is and and how interesting and I think how important what she has to say is for sort of many debates about society and, and the direction we're going in so very much worth your time that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing today and thanks also of course to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We will talk to you again soon. Thank you.